broadcasting from occupied Congo land in Long Beach, California. This is Wait, Why Am I Talking? Podcast about local current events with a socialist twist. What's up, Miles? How you feeling? Hey, hey, Vic. Uh, feeling good. It's really hot recently. We're in the middle of August. Uh, I was sad, you know, big, big name in uh, podcasting. Unfortunately, died recently. Michael Brooks. Power. Yeah. Rest in power. That's that's rough, uh, but surviving. No doubt, surviving, surviving. Jordan, how you feeling? I'm doing okay. Just did a big move. Finally got all my stuff unpacked and set up, which feels good, to be honest with you. I I feel like I've been going a little insane lately, seeing all the stuff people have been saying about Michael Brooks, because I'll be quite honest, I didn't know who that was. So it feels a little disorienting that like everybody is so... Well, had so much connection to him, and like I honestly never listened to the uh, majority report. But it's kind of, it's kind of weird. It's like somebody passed away that was so big in the social space, but I didn't even know about him. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of the Majority Report and mm-hmm. been listening to it for years upon years. Like listening to Majority Report, you know that Sam Cedar. He was in Air, he was on Air America. He had a show with Janine Garofalo. So you know they're sort of liberalish, democratic. Uh, Sam Cedar is a former comic from New York. So his whole worldview was just that. And, you know, I vibed with it, listening to podcasts. And, yeah. then, and then he got Michael Brooks, a really young cat, to join the show. And Michael grew up some parts in New York. He was 37. So he would go in and out of, like, impressions of, like, Obama being, like, <laughs> uh, right-wing Obama. No, I'm talking about, like, 5% Obama. <laughs> and, yeah, uh huh. And like Nation of Islam, Obama. It was fucking pretty fucking funny. And then he would That's also hilarious. do like right wing Nelson Mandela, which is fucking out of control. <laughs> so like he would make really funny points. And the only reason I even know who Lula is because he would not let the subject go. He would bring yeah. on international figures and interview them. He would do deep dives into like the current politics in Haiti. I've heard so mm. many journalists, Caribbean journalists, Dang. on his show. So many. It's just like, I, I keep listening because, yo, he's talking straight to my people, right? So on top of that, he would go right into 90s hip-hop and oh, talk gosh. about fucking Nas and Jay-Z and, like, dip set and go, like, deep. Like, not even, like, you know, 90s hip-hop is cool, yeah, but I'm talking about, like, deep 90s hip-hop, like, deep cuts and just drop them in conversations knowing that nobody in the audience knows. Only a few tiny, tiny percentage <laughs> of the people know what he's talking about, but he would still drop it because he's hip-hop, and that's what people that are down with hip-hop do. Like, it's part of who he is. And, yeah, that combination, I'm just like, yo, this is the dude. Like, I can is, see why you really like this guy. You know what I mean? Like, this is the dude. So uh, a couple years back, Patreon comes up, and, you know, I get on the Chapo train. That's the first Patreon I'm on. You know, I like it. I go see a Chapo live show. It's fucking fun, ruckus, and whatever. Uh, then Michael Brooks comes to town. So I'm just like, and this is me in an effort to, like, get out my work social circle, trying to, like, expand my circle beyond just work, identify mm-hmm. what I do, how I, like, enable my politics, how I practice my politics. So, like, you know, I got to be around people in real life. It's not about listening to podcasts and posting. So 
when the podcast comes through, I go. Capo came through. It was a great fucking show. Uh, Michael Brooks came through, and I went. This was like a fucking totally different. As I'm waiting in line to go to the bathroom, the dude just comes up to me and introduces himself. He's like, hey, hi, I'm Michael Brooks. Thank you for coming to the show. I really appreciate it. Who you are. And then we just have a conversation mm. straight up. And to the point where I feel bad because I'm taking up too much of his time. Huh. And then he goes down the line to everybody waiting in the bathroom and does the same thing, gives them time straight up. Like that's so dope. So rare. Yeah. Right. And so I get on his Patreon. Wow. That's the first Patreon I ever got on. And then he has the Michael Brooks show. And I'm looking through my podcast list, like so many podcasts that I listen to now, I got from his show. And these people came on after he died. They were like, yo, I started a podcast. I followed Michael Brooks on social media. He hit me up and he was like, yo, I want to be on your show. So he, so many podcasts, people of color, just to be like, he didn't even talk that way because his actions... You know what I mean? His actions just showed it. He didn't have to be woke. Look at his guest list. Look at the people he had on his show, and that proves his politics, and it was there. On top of all yeah. that, the brother was into, like, bringing in a kindness into fucking the left space, empathy into the left space. One of his idols was Cornell West, was like, yo, this is part of what the left project is, empathy and love and religion and people's association with God or the universe. Like, that's part of it. And as leftists, when we abandon that part, guess what? We abandon the majority of people. Like, that's, it, you can't have it to just be fucking a straight-up communist and no religion. Like, it don't work. Humans don't work that way. We simply do not. We are tied into emotions. And we use the emotions, radical empathy, to fucking make our point. And... After he passed away, on my computer, I have a quote. It says, be ruthless on institutions, but be kind to individuals. That's how I try to, like, I don't even have to try to do it. That's, I've been trying to do it. He's been influencing my life this past four or five years. Been listening. I've gotten the books that he says, you know, like, I've read the books that he's recommended. Like, a lot of the way I see the world is from listening to a show. So yeah, that motherfucker has a huge, huge influence in the way I see politics on the left side. So it's it's good to hear you talk about uh, him because I've only experienced uh, had experience with Michael Brooks from the Michael Brooks show, um, and at that it wasn't even too much. You know, I caught it every now and then. Uh, but everything you just said like makes me want to go back and like go through the archives and check them out from his earlier part podcast um that's really dope and and what you said like the compassion compassion and like the distinction between institutions and people really real you know we got to remember each other's humanity mm-hmm. not get lost yeah first uh thank you hamid for coming on the why am i talking podcast uh we appreciate it very much jordan vic and myself um this episode has been about surveillance capitalism and we wanted to have you on specifically because we know that with and through the stop lapd spying coalition you do a lot of work around state surveillance 
Um, so first, just to give our listeners that haven't heard about the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition some background info, could you tell us about the work that the coalition does? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity and thank you. Uh, I mean, this is a very crucial moment, a political moment to be having these conversations. Uh, the coalition has been around, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition has been around for about 10 years now. And uh, one of the primary reasons uh, that uh, it came together was folks uh, like myself and others who had a history in Los Angeles in organizing uh, against uh, the, the national security police state, the police state overall around state violence, police brutality. Um, and then of course, in that, when I named the state, uh, you know, I'm also bringing in that, you know, we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a setup that is very much state capitalism. So that's very much that how the state uh, and, and private uh, interests intersect and how they represent basically each other's interest. Uh, so in a sense, uh, uh, surveillance um, is, is, is extremely, extremely critical in, in, in managing and policing. Um, suspect bodies, that folks, uh, how is race and poverty uh, being policed? How are suspect bodies being, being policed? How is material and, and, and possessions being, being policed and, 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 and protected as well? So in a sense, you can, you, one can argue uh, that, but, but I'll get to that in a second, but just real quickly. So um, that uh, for some of us started realizing and, and looking more deeply into how the surveillance state was, uh, the national security police state was expanding, we're beginning to see that how rapidly counterinsurgency uh, and counterterrorism tactics were being incorporated into domestic policing. I mean, this is this was something that uh, had always had a long history, especially after Vietnam. But uh, post 9-11, with the expansion and the advent of uh, the information technology, information sharing and how rapidly information was moving, um, you know, and so how the when we talk about militarization of police, a lot of times the conversation stays sort of narrowed down to the material uh, existence around tanks and grenade launchers and various other things, but it's really the 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 tracing and tracking of the insurgent becomes really critical. So in a sense, like you know, so how who is the hostile? Who's the other? Who's the enemy um, of the state? Uh, and that's where race uh, plays a key role. So the coalition started started looking at the LAPD as a model, which has a long history in LA over over 150 years, but also has a global presence as well, both the national and global presence and how it both, um, how it experiments on bodies locally here and how it exports um, its tactics and its programs all around the world as well. How closely it works with Israel, how closely it works with various other entities around the world and how it is seen as a, as a, as a premier, if you will, uh, law enforcement agencies, which is then then sort of reached out. I mean, some of the examples around uh, the uh, the the uh, LAPD being involved in in providing guidance to doing Rio World Cup soccer and Rio Olympics and on and on and on. Uh, so, and LAPD also has a very long history, um, where in early 2000s, um, about 2004 or 2005. There were about 70 Marine Corps individuals attached to the LAPD who cruised the streets of Los Angeles uh, with LAPD learning their urban guerrilla warfare tactics, basically, which then they deployed um, in Al-Anbar province in Iraq and various other places too. LAPD is also known to have trained para El Salvadorian paramilitary squads 
back in the 1980s. So, so in a sense, um, that's what got the coalition started um, uh, 10 years ago. And we started looking at various programs, which in a sense, as I'm talking, directly links to what you wanted to raise around surveillance capitalism. That in a sense, when, and, and as we map out surveillance and some of the ways we look at it, that it's not a moment in time, it's a continuation of history. So now when we look at surveillance capitalism, thinking back of lantern laws, lantern laws back in the early 1700s in New York, uh, where if you were an enslaved body and you were walking in public without the, the presence of your master, you had to walk with a lantern to self-identify yourself with the candlewick as a threat as the other. So now let's bring it together. So now surveillance is happening in a property that belongs to somebody because you're an enslaved body. Um, and in a sense that, and, and that's how, you, how do you keep a tab on uh, so that nobody steals it, nobody takes it, or the property doesn't, you know, just uh, leaves itself, in this case, a human body. So, so there's definitely, uh, you know, a long history of that in the United States, particularly. I want to, I want to touch on your point, uh, just as a short follow-up about property. What do you, would you... It feels like you're suggesting that a lot of surveillance orients itself around property. Um, is that mm -hmm. correct or incorrect assumption? Could you talk uh, about that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, I think it is. Uh, even when when I, when I started off by speaking around counterinsurgency, um, you know, and those tactics as well, which is pretty much seen uh, through an occupying army's lens. I mean, what do the occupying armies do? And in this case, let's take an example of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, just this, how the people's resources or lands are then declared as assets. Um, and a claim to those assets is placed and how those assets get played out, whether they're becoming a negotiating tool uh, for more power or they just outrightly profit is made or outrightly they're just destroyed. So the claim, I think, first of all, it's the claim what happens to it becomes secondary, but laying that claim and within that, in that protection of assets really is where surveillance and making sure um, that they remain safe, uh, surveillance plays a key role, whether it's based on, I would say a lot, a lot of times when we talk about surveillance, uh, we get caught up in just the, the tools of surveillance and technology per se, like cell phones and cameras and, and drones and this, that, and the other. But human-based intelligence gathering and human-based surveillance and human-based guarding of assets and properties is as old as, you know, one can, one can go. So that also I would look at it in the context of surveillance, of keeping an eye out for undesirables, keeping an eye out um, for some, somebody who doesn't belong, keeping an eye out that somebody doesn't come and, and destroy or, or, or harm the property as well. So now in that case, of course, like, you know, the, the history being that where a human body was a property itself, so then we move and we can build from there um, in that context as well. Okay, thank you. All right, um, so recently we know there's been uh, massive uh, unrest and uprisings against police brutality and racism, and there's been massive actions uh, against that brutality and racism. Can you shed light on what measures or programs of surveillance we should have expected to have been employed during these actions and, and how this data is being used or these data? So, so uh, several, I mean, and I think it's, and it's very layered as well. I mean, first of all is uh, even uh, let's start from, and maybe we can draw 
sort of a, a scenario over here as well that as things are happening, there is already uh, an active engagement through, for example, these days through social network analysis. Uh, that how people's engagement through social media is being traced and tracked and monitored and all of that, right? Uh, then obviously the pre-existing uh, intelligence gathering guidelines, which are already, for example, which are human-based as well. So which, for example, the LAPD uh, passed these guidelines in uh, early 2012, where they can place informants in uh, political organizations based on a tip uh, to gather information. Right. So, or they can take on fake identities or fake personas to go and friend folks in social media and all that. So that already is happening. So that whole surveillance, to your point, uh, as uh, is, is is a pre-existing condition. Then, when um, already uh, these uh, then, then rebellions and uprisings, and because in a sense that surveillance is exactly to your point, um, that that what are they afraid of? I mean, I, you know, and of course, the, the, the protecting the assets becomes in protecting property, protecting assets, protecting infrastructures, which are also assets as well, become a key area uh, where, where the surveillance happens. So, so you already have those, those, those uh, things in motion. Then uh, things get triggered, things get the spark. So all that conversation, how that is happening, whether it's through the deployment of, of uh, uh, MC catchers or, or, or stingrays, um, uh, could you could you just clearly tell us what MC catchers or stingrays are, just because I am not necessarily familiar in our, yeah, our so audience. Yeah, these are like uh, these uh, MCs, like stands for the International Mobile Subscriber Identity something something something. Thinking about stingrays and and the the International Mobile Subscriber Subscriber Identity that I believe that's what MC stands for. These are. Um, basically, so stingrays we were talking about how they get deployed and what that tool is. Uh, and, and these are all uh, uh, created, these are all developed by the U.S. military. So the name Stingray is also because the U.S. Navy, U.S. Marine Corps had developed these uh, as well. Uh, and there's other names to Kingfisher and some other names to these. Uh, so what basically what Stingray does is that it is a, it's, it's like a, a square rectangular or rectangular box, um, which when deployed, uh, it mimics cell phone towers. So what it does is that for a cell phone to operate, basically it's a triangulation of signals that goes through your provider's cell phone towers and then your calls go through and all that. So what, what Stingray does is that it mimics those and artificially just, just sort of like it cheats your, your phone into uh, directing all your phones into the, the, their own um, uh, device where they can pick up all your conversation and all of that stuff. So of course, uh, you know, as, um, action starts happening and all of that. Those 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 uh, devices are being deployed. Uh, there's various other devices like the dig digital receiver technology, which is uh, uh, a quick question: Is encryption effective against, say, like Stingray technology, for example? Um, not all of them. Um, so so and then and the jury is still out because my understanding is that dirt boxes, which is DRT or digital receiver technology, is more or less like Stingrays on steroids. Um, and those are deployed as well, um, sometimes through fixed wing airplanes, small Cessnas and all of that. Um, so the FBI uses them quite a bit. So that is also happening as well. Um, and then, of course, the age old uh, undercovers um, and informants and, and, and people who are very much a part and parcel of, uh, in a sense, of protests and, and marches and rallies as well, who are there. So in a sense, to your point, 
um, you know, even before things start happening, a lot of these things are deployed both on a human-based intelligence gathering and the and the tools that are used as well, helicopters, um, very huge through high-definition cameras, uh, through monitoring people's movements and picking up information as well, trapwire technology, which are like these, these cameras which have a box attached to them that process uh, in real time, especially at night through thermal and infrared imaging in capturing your images as well. Uh, license plate readers, uh, using those to, to which my understanding is and, and that uh, Long Beach in the, in the most recent uprising and rebellion, there was some news that LAPD had deployed um, near the Pike uh, uh, license plate readers and all of that. And then, and apparently they were gonna go and start confiscating people's cars. So, so then these get, and then there's a follow-up as well. So already we have heard um, that about uh, in these current movement, over 300 domestic terrorism cases are, are, are going to be all around the country. Uh, They're gonna be bringing charges against people as well. So in a sense, um, you know, very, very present and then close circuit television, uh, CCTVs, uh, LAPD itself had announced uh, earlier on uh, the, the first or the second day that they're going to invite the FBI um, and they're going to gather the footage through closer circuit televisions and, and, and monitor those. Um, and because FBI also has the, is the largest repository of facial recognitions technology and, and, and fingerprints and also driver's license information too. So in a sense, it's, it's not only one agency, it's a multi-agency sort of a, an operation as well. So yeah, I mean, definitely even before actions begin, doing the actions and then following up the actions too. Right, but what what were the patterns of deployment for surveillance programs uh, outside of the context of the uprisings? Like, uh, is there patterning throughout LA County where these communities are under more surveillance or this community is under uh, less surveillance? Um, and how does that sort of hash out if that is the case? Well, it's 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 very much a. Uh, um, I mean, racial profiling is deeply, deeply embedded, embedded, and I would even argue that it drives uh, a lot of these programs as well. I'll give you one example, and it's very interesting that these are mostly national security, counterterrorism type programs. So, which and one program which even led to the to, to the our, our very first fight is the National Suspicious Activity Reporting Program, and what that program was. Uh, a quick uh, snapshot of that, that um, right after 9-11, a commission was established, and then the 9-11 commission came out with its report, and was some of the, one of the key findings, which surprise, surprise, was that, uh, that the events of 9-11 happened, uh, that various agencies were not sharing information. So the FBI was not sharing information with the local law enforcement, they were not, there was a lot of turf. Uh, uh, protection going on because there's a lot of funding attached to, to their turf as well, and, and federal grants and federal monies. Um, so, so, on, so the 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 recommendation was that there's got to be a seamless um, information sharing that needs to happen, both between federal, local, private, uh, public sector, private sector, uh, social media. Um, so, the Congress then passed a law in 2004 called Intelligence Reform Terrorism Prevention Act. And in that, in that law, it mandated the executive branch uh, to create a massive umbrella information sharing environment where all the information would be shared seamlessly. They also created the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which brought a whole bunch of intelligence agencies under one umbrella. 
So within a, a period of a couple of years after the law was passed, uh, now uh, started realizing that, okay, well, we can share information about known violations anywhere from a traffic ticket and put them up in a central databases and all of that. But what about thought crime? What about people who are planning and thinking to do something? So in that, uh, they launched the, and they, uh, both the Director of National Intelligence and the federal government, uh, launched the National Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative. And in that, they identified um, that behavior is central and we're going to monitor behavior. And if it is observed in a particular way, under in, under particular circumstances, then we will open up a report, even if people are, are engaging in, in supposedly first constitutionally protected activity. So for example, taking photographs in public, um, using video cameras uh, and using taking videos of infrastructures, walking into infrastructures and asking about hours of operation. Uh, drawing diagrams, taking notes, a lot of day-to-day -day sort of benign activity, but that became, and the way they defined suspicious activity was that it's observed behavior reasonably indicative of pre-operational planning. So your behavior is being observed that reasonably indicates that you are thinking of doing something wrong, right? So that was for the law enforcement. It's one of the, it's one of the, the most, it's the largest program in the country, which includes every federal agency, every law enforcement agency, local sheriffs, uh, campus police, transit police, private sector is heavily involved. Um, even individuals uh, can go through and be, and be called terrorism liaison officers and be trained by the FBI as well to that. So that happened uh, where the officers would do that. And then they started a companion program, which became popularly known as See Something, Say Something. Mm. Um, uh, real quick, real quick. So the behavior you were mentioning is is data, could be something that can, that's construed as data gathering behavior, like taking exactly. photos, mapping. Like pre-operational uh, planning. Right, right. But is it just confined, uh, just confined to that behavior? Is it a vague umbrella of action to be defined, say, by a FBI caseworker or something, or was it very clearly laid out? Well, no, it's, it's I mean, just the, the, the definition of suspicious activity is so abstract that it completely is, is what it does is that it, it legitimizes speculation. And it's, it legitimizes hunch to your point, absolutely. Like observed behavior, reasonably ind indicative of pre-operational planning, right? So I'm watching somebody do something with a camera in front of a building. And what happens is that let's say an officer observes that, and we have document documentations around a lot of these case situations. Uh, for example, a group of, um, of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, art school students in Brentwood out on a field trip for photography, uh, taking photographs, get stopped by, by sheriffs, and next thing you know, their names are going into Joint Terrorism Task Force because when the file gets opened, it's vetted to see if there's any nexus to criminal activity or, or terrorism. And then it's sent to the central fusion centers, which are these warehouses of information gathering uh, and spy centers, where then the Joint Terrorism Task Force and FBI kind of leads those, and they do the vetting as well to see if there's any nexus or not. Um, and if it's not, then of course, but, but the problem is that even if it's, there's no nexus, they get to keep your file for 30 years. Uh, so just a mere act of taking a photograph. So in a sense, going back to the racial profiling piece, um, the companion program in, in LA is called iWatch, small letter I, which basically becomes a license for racial, racial profiling where they ask the community to report suspicious activity. So now when we force the inspector general of the LAPD to do an audit of these programs, what we found was in the, in the city of LA, 
the black population is 9%, but in one, this one year, 31% of the files that were opened identified individuals as black. And then where there was gender identified, um, there were 50% were identified as black women. So now there's clearly over three to one disparate impact because now they're using it for day-to-day -day criminal activity, but now there is no evidence. There's no, not even probable cause. There's not even reasonable suspicion because reasonably indicative is not an articulable fact, it's an articulable concern. So a watered down version of a watered down version is being deployed and who's on the receiving end, it's very clear. Let's look at uh, nextdoor.com. Like, you know, the, so now the, the, the talking about surveillance capitalism and, and the, the commodification and monetization of these uh, uh, programs as well, um, you know, who's on the receiving end? That's also licensed racially profile as well. Let's look at ring technology. So on and on and on. So there's a whole lot of um, information that is there. Um, same thing with predictive policing, that who was on the receiving end of using these uh, technologies and algorithms and predictive algorithms. We were just before this call, we were talking about surveillance at, um, in public sector, Department of Children and Family Services, how DCFS that how information is used, how these risk assessment tools, which are fundamentally really racist to begin with. So um, obviously, you know, in the United States, it, we cannot have a conversation without grounding ourselves in race and poverty and suspect bodies. So that's essentially where surveillance comes in um, as a primary tool uh, to, to trace and track and monitor and to, to basically to contain, control and criminalize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The intersection and the targets seem to historically be the same. Um, uh, following those historical patterns of the uh, oppression of black bodies uh, and other people of color. Um, so I, I, I looked at uh, your website, did a little research, and I see that you recently had a webinar on the targeting of youth. Mm -hmm. um, right now, there's tons of initiatives to have online class over the internet. In a lot of cases, in communities where people can't afford to purchase their own computers, uh, I don't know how much that makes a difference, um, cities provided or state provided computers. So um, how, how is that going to affect, and how, I guess how does that interact with uh, the surveillance of younger generations and intergenerational surveillance, um, and especially in this time of where everything seems to be going remote and more of our lives are be being lived online. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, uh, Miles, youth have been, uh, um, you know, youth have always been a target for the state. I mean, like, you know, I mean, um, I was a youth once and I'm sure you're still very youthful. So in a sense, like, you know, how even looking at our own lives as well, but now, and of course, when you look at the policing of the youth, um, it is very, very formalized. It's, 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 it's draconian. It's absolutely, um, you know, it's, it's extremely expansive. So even, you know, gang injunctions, gang databases. So even when you look back over the last 60 years of the war on crime and the war on gangs and the war on drugs, it's predominantly when you look at the demographics, I mean, one is predominantly uh, young people of color, uh, black and brown, um, and, and, and very young people as well. So youth, youth have always been a target but over time what is happening is that uh, i did mention social network analysis so how youth are being traced and tracked through social networking um and there's there's documentation there's also facts as well that cases have been brought uh, so for example operation crew cut in new york 
um, and the other places as well where, where uh, youth were targeted as a result of social network and statements that they made. So that's one. But the other piece is that how that is now taking on the whole language and the narrative is taking on a whole national security significance. So the, the language of violent extremism, the language of radicalization, like what was, and it's again, like one of the other uh, values that drives our work is that there's always another. So, so the, 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 the face of the enemy, whether it was a savage native or the criminal black or the illegal Latino or now the terrorist Muslim. So now Muslim youth uh, uh, under the guise of preventing violent extremism or radicalization, but slowly that comes back and it gets incorporated into every, every day of our lives. So that whole piece is now gone into high schools, preventing violent extremism where behavior and moods become become criminalized. So if a youth is showing signs of anger, if a youth is too much into their culture, or if they're coming out, out of poverty, or if they're a migrant, all of these are considered um, sort of triggers, uh, if you will, um, and, and should be policed and monitored as well. And that's that's how they, they claim that. So youth are, are, are a huge target, um, uh, definitely, of the state. So I don't I don't know if you're familiar with Shoshana Zuboff, uh, but she is one of the major theorists behind um, surveillance capitalism. But basically, her her premise of what basically the advent of surveillance capitalism has caused is uh, is a crisis basically in uh, epistemic rights or the rights of who gets to know. Um, so I sort of want to ask, uh, with that in mind. What should we, right, as organizers uh, at the city level, at the state level, at the national level, international level, how should we go about organizing under the current paradigm of surveillance, the first surveillance state, but also in addition, additionally, uh, surveillance capitalism? What are what's actionable? What should we start doing and thinking about? Well, I mean, as uh, as uh fierce abolitionist, I mean, that's always been our fundamental premise, and you heard us talk about it in other spaces as well, that it is about abolition and it is about dismantlement. I think um, um, uh, the, the right to know um, is while, yes, I mean, I think everybody would have the, but I think the question is that sometimes uh, that can also, the lines can get blurred around the invasion of privacy argument as well. Right. And then when we further break it down and we look at the invasion of privacy, then we need to question as to who even has privacy um, and who can even claim privacy. Right. Can can an unhoused uh, black person claim privacy living in Skid Row, downtown Los Angeles? I don't think so. Can a migrant claim privacy? I don't think so. Um, just being a non-white person, being a suspect body, can a trans person claim privacy? I don't think so. So I think in a sense, uh, from from our, for our vantage point, um, we don't look at it through the lens of invasion of privacy. We we are very clear about it that it's the intent to cause harm, um, and its very basic existence is the intent to cause harm. Because and this is where race and poverty comes in. Because if the system is set up where the cruelty of capitalism, the sheer violence of capitalism, the sheer absolutely devastation as a result of capitalism. And then uh, the, the complete dehumanization as a result of racism, um, you know, and the complete genocide from settler colonialism. And, and then, of course, so I can we can we, we are using these grand terms, but they are reality. So I think then, of course, 
to preserve uh, those systems of oppression, to preserve those ideologies, to be in service to those ideologies, um, the policing is the tip of the knife and is the knife that is in the hand of that ideology that is that is you know just pierced through bodies and surveillance becomes the the tip of that policing knife so there is no way i mean in a sense um uh, that that you know that it can be ever reformed it is just it is it inherently it would in order for it to reform capitalism has to end in order for it to it to 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 reform, it has to completely be abolished. So I mean, and something new has to be introduced as well. So I think in that vein, um, you know, I mean, it has to be the the organizing is always has to be, and that's why uh, we we bitterly and utterly, and today we actually put out a whole action against the ACLU of Southern California, and we've been exposing them and outing them because they, and of course, because they follow the constitution. So we consider them as functionaries of the state, um, you know, because if that is their sacred document, so it, it, in a sense, that's what happens. So they have been pushing these oversight and transparency and accountability ordinances, just exactly the right to know. And they exactly like, you know, that, that, uh, that how, so our response to that is, that inherent in that claim is that you're passing legislations in the name of the people. And what people, so what you're saying is that people are saying it's okay for us to be surveilled, but just do it this way, right? And right. so given the history of that, we completely reject that um, because of the institutions and the violence institutions that we are dealing with. So we completely reject the notion of reform because in a sense, and myself as well, as a person of color, and you know, as as a migrant, as an immigrant, I've had my and Hamid Hussein Khan, immigrant from Pakistan. So my, I'm 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 always going to be that dirty data. I'm always going to be that suspect body. So my fight, and many like myself, the fight is not to clean up the data, and not to fight for an unbiased algorithm. It's about the dismantlement of the system, the complete uprooting and abolition of the system. Uh, because it is not even mathematically possible uh, to, because the way there's so much information sharing going on. So long answer to your to your question, in essence, um, the fight is really towards abolition. And I think, but it requires, uh, it requires a whole lot of serious work. It requires to do research. It requires to file for public records. It requires to be constantly present. It requires to really just um, just build that power on the ground, and rather than, instead of putting our faith into legislative changes or or through adjudication or finding a, a First Amendment lawsuit and all of that, because and that has been the history of fight against surveillance, because it has been mm -hmm. it has remained it it has been colonized so much in that domain of of nonprofit law firms and legislations that the the conversation has always remained at a thirty thousand foot level. So that was one of the biggest tasks for us, that how we demystify and bring this conversation to the ground level so people are recognizing that, no, it's not just a um, sort of like this, this, this uh, you know, just either a trench coat type person who's following us or Cointelpro or uh, the, the Edward Snowden type sensationalism around listing on. It's 24-7. It's all day, every day, 24-7. So it has to be dismantled. Right, right. And... Um and consent was never given, like, also, because I guess originally when surveillance started, how can people consent if they're not part of the governing, governed body, right, the civic body? 
So which um, is which is obviously the a part of the DNA of the governance because the genocide of natives and the enslavement of of Africans, uh, the removal of people from land, um, the so consent was never. I mean, who that consent was for? I mean, in very far and few in between, and even if that consent was possible. So I think the notion of consent by itself needs to be very critically examined that who can even access. So so the goal really here is um, that that rather than, quite frankly, wasting and spending our time, you have to fight back. But how do we make these irrelevant over time? Um, because to expect that, you know, our consent will be there, I don't think so. You know, yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't think so either, I think. Uh, it, they don't ask for consent now. They're not going to do it in the future. They're just going to come up with ways to circumvent questions of consent um, as though we could give it to begin with. Many people go to actions, coming back to the uprisings, and they record what's going on. What should we know about recording what's going on and broadcasting it? Man, that's something, Miles. Remember when we were doing this cop watch and all that training? <laughs> so, yep. yeah, you. I mean, I think if we have to be very careful. We have to be that unintentionally, the unintentional consequences can be many, um, both by posting stuff on social media and uh, identifying people. Uh, and also we have to be careful that what we do that. And of course, people are excited. So I also don't want to just like, you know, rain on people's parade. But I think if it's done smartly, uh, it's the same thing in a way that we talk about infiltration. That you know, it's not about that. You can we can never stop infiltration. So so rather than beating our head against the wall, um, and you know, let's take our uh, let's turn out turn off our phones. Let's take the battery off and going through all of those stuff as well. I think the question is that it's not what they want from us. It's like how much are we willing to give? So let's not be very active participants in giving away, um, you know, our identities and and things as well. Uh, so in a sense, when we are doing that, we just have to be very cautious that, that at least if you're doing it, then at least do not post into social media and go public with that as well, um, because anything can be subpoenaed. So that can be held. I mean, we already said that there's already such a pervasive surveillance environment through CCTVs and all of that stuff um, and, and them reviewing all this footage uh, with the FBI and all of that stuff as well. So why even add more, um, which will come back to to haunt us in the future? Right, right. Why give them more tools to use against us? Exactly, exactly. Well, on that note, thank you, Hamid. That was a great right, conversation yeah. and discussion. Uh, maybe we'll have you back on a future episode for a different topic. Well, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. We're going to be looking at an article by protocol, but uh, pretty much it's it's talking about, I, I get around the George Floyd protest, Google, Zoom, social media, a lot of these social media uh, companies, it started to come out how they have contracts, Amazon too, uh, they have contracts with a lot of law enforcement. Some of these quotes in this article are making my head fucking spin, I swear to God.
please, please like share. The opener that's like over the past week, tech giants, including Microsoft, Amazon, and IBM have expressed solidarity with protesters who have taken up taken to the streets to oppose police brutality. Like, oh, that's yeah. a good sign. <laughs> you know? What was uncovered by organizers, it's like words words really mean so little because yeah. they have contracts with police, right? Um so a lot of this uh, this article talks about how um, Silicon Valley, uh, to quote, uh, predominant companies have experienced a wave of internal activism, right? And so this has like been pushing them to sort of adhere. I, I know Google had the the um, slogan "Do no evil," right? Well, surprise, surprise, they, they, they got rid of. Yeah, they they got rid of it, right? Um, so they they had internal pressure, which I guess caused a lot of them to make this statement, right? But then we find out uh, that, so for example, Microsoft pitched his cloud services as key to a digital transformation of law enforcement, right? Law enforcement. <laughs> yeah, but they so, want to tweet out Black Lives Matter, though. Right, right. They want to seem well, uh, as though they're about social justice. Well, Vic, you know, I think you should be more respectful of IBM because they did tweet uh, embrace EBM uh, bracket R-A-C-E bracket embrace. Oh, I don't even know what that means. I have no idea what that means. I have, I have no embra- idea what that means. Oh, man. I want to embrace. No race. I, what? Also, they changed their color scheme to like, I don't know what that is exactly, but something to do with black activism. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that that entirely makes up for participation and helping. Oh, New York Police Department, uh, frack license much beloved plate police department of this podcast. Oh yeah, much friends beloved. of the pod, <laughs> NYPD. Some of the worst worst abusers of protesters and people. Yeah, speaking of um, this sort of technology in Long Beach, Reese, not excuse me, in Pasadena, LBPD recently towed somebody's car. Because they said they were fucking um, agitating something. They were rioting during the protest back in June. From Pasadena? Yes. Yep. They went back. They found a footage, quote unquote, through probably some mass data gather- gathering and went through the data, found where the person was at the time. How do you think they found where the person was at the time to go arrest them in Pasadena? Well, funny you say that, Vic, because actually it's, it's more tenuous than that. They they said that their car was parked near the looting. They didn't even have evidence of this person like being at the looting. So maybe they had cell data, you're right. But according to the person, they just told them like, oh, we pulled your license plate number from near the protest that day. And, and this, this is just like, really, this is really scary because yeah. if, if we're talking about like this epistemic, this knowledge inequality, right? So, you know, laws can go both ways. They might end up in the future just legalize this whole epistemic inequality and just be able to use it as evidence to go to Pasadena and tell your truck. I mean, they're they're already doing it, right? Yeah, I was gonna say it's already legal. Just they, legal. Just legalize it further. Who knows if it's legal? They're just pushing it. You know what I mean? We're at the point where now we don't have the laws to even to say whether something's illegal or not illegal. Like right. Shoshana was saying, we need the institutions to come in to right the harm. Because yeah. without that, capitalism is just going to grind us down into fucking sausage paste, you know? <laughs> well, 
I think it's it's really interesting the, the angle capitalists are taking on this. For example, um, the CEO of Microsoft issued a statement that said, there is, quote, no place for hate and racism in our society. Uh, I, I'm confused. Are these protests about hate and racism? Because I, last time I checked, they were about police brutality. So, like, it seems like this co-opting message is just, like, generally against, like, hate and racism, which is, like, in their terms, so vague, I wouldn't even know to identify what that means. I'm like, curious. Who's doing the hate and racism? Yeah, why are all these companies feeling the pressure to say something? Why not just shut the fuck up? Like, is it, you know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Like, it's, we're in August right now. All right, Amazon said Black Lives Matter. So what? Like, if they had not said it, I would still have my Amazon. The dude would still be making billions almost every fucking day. Like, I'm still curious to why they're doing all this. Why? They, they got to do damage control because Amazon, Amazon too, so not just Microsoft, Amazon has recognition spelled with a K or something like that. What is all this which, shit, dude? It, <laughs> exactly. Great question. It's facial recognition software that they pump out to police department. And, and you know, in another article, I know they, they said they put a moratorium, a one-year moratorium on actually having those relationships with police departments moratorium is not saying we're not going to do it and who knows what governments they're potentially working with abroad yeah this is pedophile i know so for one year <laughs> there's i'm not going to talk to him for one year so that's it oh done yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah and then it sounds fucking ridiculous yes exactly yeah, that sounds fucking ridiculous yeah. Some guy will get accused of something terrible and either deny it or accept it or whatever, and they'll just be like, all right, I'm taking a break for, like, uh, I saw a streamer recently that took a break for, like, I think it was, like, two weeks, and then they were like, I'm back. It's like, cool, man. Great to have you back. Hey, we, we missed your fucking sex pest personality. So, you know, th this, this, I think, is so disconcerting because it's already, we were talking about it's unregulated, right? It's a tool, but immediately... It's like, let's use it to oppress people and make money. Uh, and and it's, it's just, we got to, as we said, we got to work on the institutions and well, get it under wraps. I think, it, I think it's very revealing the fact there's a quote in here from uh, a guy from the uh, International Association of Chiefs of Police, the, the same organization, Ugh. funnily enough, that, well, hang on, Vic. Uh, according to LBPD, those are a bunch of uh, no good commie uh, sickos because these are the same people that they threw away that report ah. international association of chiefs of police were doing a report on lbpd and lbpd was like this report isn't relevant this is too hard on us let's throw it away um but anyway he said if these big companies uh stop selling cops these technologies they'd find another vendor and i think this is such an interesting logic of capitalism right like hey man if much like uh, Deutsche Bank said back in the day, if we didn't provide the loan to build Auschwitz, somebody else would have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the you profit know? motive, the profit motive, the competition of the market and all that, and puts the fear in your head, well, I got to do it. Someone else is going to do it. It needs to happen, you know? Hey, man, if, if I don't make Agent Orange, somebody else is going to. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, you know, they're going to find another vendor, right? Someone's going to sell it to the police to make money. So why like not us? And like y'all yep. said, it as it's not it's institutional. It doesn't have to do with individuals. So like individual boycotts, all that shit. Like I see why it's tempting, but like it's not. It ain't gonna do shit. Boycotts and, 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 ain't gonna do shit. Yeah, I was gonna say, how do we how do we boycott it? Because they're just 
drafting all of this information from us passively. Like we can't refuse the consent because we use all these tools in our lives just to function. Check this uh, out. Law enforcement is a key market for tech, right? Numerous vendors pitch police ugh. leaders on tools that include license plate scanners. We talked about that. Smart smart surveillance cameras, gunshot detectors. Oh yeah, check this out. They what? could have microphones, right? Placed like blocks away. And when uh-huh. a gunshot happens, depending on the time it takes the sound to reach the individual microphones, they could pinpoint exactly to where that gunshot is, to exactly where That's that gunshot insane. is, right? And those microphones are probably always listening. Okay, what else we have? Uh, software products. They make body cameras. Uh, what else? Evidence database systems. There's companies like Axon that make tasers. But like, yo, all these companies, they're just vendors, and all they do is service cops. That's it. Mm. They service cops. So now there's a whole market for all this technology, all this new technology. So capitalism, well, if I want to make money, I sell fucking surveillance technology, especially now. Well, it's interesting, like, how I think there's a lot of different public opinions on this, obviously, and I don't know... This shows like the both sides journalism happening over protocol because they earlier they even say like when they're talking about this regul regulating these people or like abolishing this or like having institutions, they say any such moves would be complex and controversial and it's not clear how broadly they would be supported. Some tech tools like body cameras have the potential to bring more accountability to policing. Like what is this 2010, man? Like I'm pretty sure most people at this point don't want Facebook to spy on them. Yeah. We know body cams are a fucking scam. Exactly. Yeah. That's not a minority opinion I hold. Another th- another thing is uh, actually this this doesn't mention it, but Sh- Shoshana was talking about how sort of all these private experiences that we have. So th- I'm I'm sure that there's another product that we're not just not aware of, which is just basically like a profiling product. Oh yeah. Because if if they're micro targeting us for ads, like ha- they definitely have freaking profiles future criminal profiles because i mean that's what shoshana was talking about too right they're selling the soon and the future so i mean we were joking about minority report uh the movie but this is it i i feel like you know if i'm thinking about it like that's what you would want as a product to sell to the police be like hey we got these predictive algorithms they can predict with 80 percent confidence or something like that so you know who who knows the kind of products that we're not you know aren't even reported yep. that we just still don't know about. There's a good quote in here from a professor, uh, Gillard, stating that he doesn't think that there'll be actual shifts inside of these companies. And the idea of relying on corporations to make a virtuous stand on this issue underscores that the actual levers of accountability for law enforcement in America are broken. Ding, 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 ding. The whole <laughs> system is broken. Yep. Exactly, right? So this is why we see shit like people passing around petitions to force these companies to do it. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, if we had a functioning democracy, I wouldn't be begging Jeff Bezos to stop selling the Predator drone software to the, uh, you know, Border Patrol. Yep, well, all socialists here, to bring it all back, I just got a letter from MPI. That's the Motion Picture Industry Health and Pension Plan. And they just told me that uh, even though they gave the extra 100 hours to qualify for health insurance, that I still don't qualify. So, so you mean like they, they were like, hey, we gave you an extra 100 hours towards your qualification for health insurance. Yes. But 
That's still, still not enough. That's still not enough. And oh guess God. what I could do? I could go appeal. So, again, I could go beg rich people for help. <sighs> it's the fucking for system. Health, for health care. For health care. It's the system. Whether we're talking about fucking ca- um, phones, surveillance capitalism, it's the same thing. I got to go beg a rich person for fucking something. Something that should just be. I have to go beg a rich person. It always comes back to that. I'm a union fucking sound mixer. I've been in the union for like six years. Been getting health insurance. I can't work the hours to get health insurance now. And MPI just told me I'm SOL. So now I'm on Obamacare. So what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? That's good that you say that. And I think, I think this is like elemental rights, right? Like we are, we are about human rights. And I think Shoshana, she talked about it in terms of elemental rights and how like now our right to know is coming under attack, mm-hmm. right? And definitely to me, healthcare, that's an elemental yeah. right. Fuck we yeah. should all be able to live a life where we can be healthy. Um, yeah, and as socialists, I think a pretty strong foundation are human rights. Uh, and it's it's interesting how capitalism keeps bringing in more and more of those elemental rights and monetizing them Fuck. for the benefit of a few at the expense of the, of the many. Carl well, Cap is a fucking like a soothsayer, dude. The fucking dude is looking right <laughs> into the goddamn future. Well, you know, these rich people have been fucking around for a while, and uh, I'm hoping we're getting to the find out stage because I'm I'm pretty. I've been saying late stage capitalism for years, so I'm. I'm a little tired of where it's at now. Well, no federal extension of rent moratoriums. Some states have eviction courts open. I saw a map of like the percentages of people, of renters who haven't paid rent. In California, it's only 30%. That's only 30%. Oh, 30%, no problem. Yo. What, that's 10 million? Well, renters are <laughs> probably like a, a couple million deal. people. Dude, in some states, it's like over 50%. Oh my god! And these states Ooh. have like their courts are opening up. So yeah, last year we did like two point three or two point five million evictions in this country. Almost forty million people are in that point to be evicted. Welcome to the cool zone, kids. Like, uh, what's the opposite of the end of history? Shit! Like the beginning of the next stage. Like late stage, man. Fuck, dude. We're here, but I don't know what's gonna happen. Like. Just because shit gets so bad doesn't mean people are going to rise up, unfortunately. Nope. And it doesn't no. even mean, and people keep talking about this of like, well, you know, it could go two ways, it could go good or bad, but you have to realize like capitalism is very resilient. It, there, is a, there is a possibility that things could just get worse. Yes. But not yeah. collapse, right? Like yeah. uh-huh. the police departments will still operate, the governments will still operate, the corporations will still run. A general amount of people will generally be able to find some form of, maybe even if it's living on the streets, shelter, right? Mm-hmm. And like yep. the, the system itself will not crumble or change yeah. fundamentally. Yeah, that's a definite possibility. Like the rev ain't here yet. Yeah, man. So don't, don't yep. rely on it. Uh-uh. All right. Well, on that, that happy note. <laughs> That's fucking, what do we call it again? That's capitalism, Surve- baby. Oh, yeah. Surveillance capitalism. capitalism. Oh, surveillance capitalism. You're right. New uh, age of inequality. 
So we got rainbow capitalism. We got surveillance capitalism. What else we got? We got uh, industrial capitalism. Industrial capitalism. Ah, crony capitalism, crony which is capitalism. somehow different from the regular one. I don't know how, but <laughs> according to Elizabeth Warren. Oh man, yeah. This has been a great show. Like analyzing how it all comes back to begging rich people for money. Mm-hmm. Thanks for uh, listening, y'all. It's been a great show. Be sure to subscribe and rate on your favorite podcast platform. And I'm Vic. I'm Jordan. And I'm Miles. And remember to ask yourself, wait, why am, why I, am I talking? talking? That was horrible. Cool. Later, <laughs> right, guys. Again, again. I know. We got <laughs> it. That's later. it. Later. All right, later. Yeah, we got it. We got it. <laughs> we that whole thing. Is. <laughs>